So welcome back to the Story of Software podcast. And today we're joined by Arjun Mendy, who's the CEO of Molten. How are you today, Arjun? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm really looking forward to talking uh, about product market fit and learning a little bit more about your company and your journey in, in setting up the business. And for the benefit of our listeners, Molten is a cloud platform dealing with media rights, content and financial management operating across six continents, managing many millions of, of rights and, uh, and content. So Arjun, maybe to kick off, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your journey. Sure. You know, I really founded Molson to modernize the value chain of the media industry. Essentially, as you pointed out, redesigning the underlying rights, content and financial operations on which, you know, film, TV, music, gaming content relies today. Um, as of today, we're focused on the film and TV industry, but that's the larger motivation for Molten. And what got me introduced to the media industry and got me started in the space was really my own experience as an indie musician. So, you know, back about 15 years ago, I lived two lives. By day, I was a software engineer. And by night, I was a musician. So I played lead guitar in an indie rock band. And pretty soon, I started getting approached by record labels and producers. And being a software engineer who built data pipelines professionally, I was quite intrigued by the mechanics of the industry, such as who owns the rights, who gets paid, who decides what content goes where, and who decides what's a fair deal, etc. So over time, that interest turned into fascination. And about nine years ago, when I had just joined MIT, I filed my first patent in decentralized rights management. So many years later, here we are with Molten. Cool. Are you still playing guitar? Uh, you know, I, I attempt to, <laughs> let's put it that way. Nowhere as good as I used to be. But uh, I think interests evolve over time. And right now, I feel, you know, more fascinated by how the music and the media industry operates as opposed to, you know, being driven to be a participant myself as an artist in the industry. Yeah, well, there's something about entrepreneurship that satisfies uh, your desire for creative output too, because, I mean, you are creating a business. So, you know, I think Andy Warhol spoke about the overlap between art and business. And uh, I think he's, he spoke about making money as the highest form of art. So anyway. <laughs> Arjun, earlier in your career, you worked in the software development world, as you mentioned. Did that experience equip you with particular skills that are useful when you're building and driving forth your own business? Yes, certainly. For me, it comes down to three things. First is an engineering mindset on how I look at problems, understand them, dissect them, and break them down. Uh, the second would be an agile development approach, which is how do I go about constructing a solution when we may not actually know what the end result looks like? And the third is applying experience in building technical products for non-technical users. You know. A few years ago, I was building robotics solutions, robotics systems for large factories. And 
I realized as I was building these products that most of the users of these really complex robotic systems, and each system was you know, almost the size of a football field, um, most of these users were non-technical users. They had no background in engineering or robotics or even mathematics. And I had to distill a complex system like that down to you know, a few button clicks and down to you know, intelligence built into the system. So that sort of an experience has stayed with me and influenced how I go about approaching problems that I'm trying to solve in the startup. Very cool. Today, we want to talk really about product market fit. Would you be able to tell us about the early product development process at Molten? Certainly. My key learnings from early product development at Molten are first, obsess over the problem. Second, don't get held back by sunk cost. And third, launch fast, iterate, and incorporate every learning along the way. And perhaps a bonus fourth point here would be just enjoy the hunt. It is not every day that you get to do this and you know, make this journey exciting and fun for yourself and your team. I just want to clarify when you mentioned don't get held back by sunk cost. Yeah. I guess to just kind of clarify that point, are, are you outlining that maybe naturally we're a bit too inclined to keep going when we're on a particular path? Precisely. I think as product-heavy founders, um, I see you know, people starting companies because they have a strong belief or conviction that something they're doing or something they can do is going to make the world a better place, is going to solve a meaningful problem. Um, that conviction can sometimes become a bias which can make founding teams less receptive to industry feedback. Uh, they stop listening to the market cues. You know, a good example there is when we started Molten, there were many companies that were doing similar things as we were. And while we had conviction in what we were doing, we were pretty objective about our own biases and we were ready to test them and be proven wrong. And as we tested our hypotheses, and many of them you know, were proven wrong, we course corrected. And my learning there was, it is something to celebrate every time you realize that something you built is not required in the industry, as opposed to regretting that you built something that is not required in the industry. You know, at Molten, we generally have a very positive attitude to throwing away code, throwing away components of our product that we realize are no longer needed. Because it's, you know, it's reducing our baggage, it's making us more informed, it's making us leaner and more focused. So as the founder, it is the founder's job, in my opinion, to create that culture in the company where you must celebrate every time you are cutting out the fat in your own product. And my way of articulating that is don't get held back by some cost. Uh, I believe that requires a level of emotional maturity, both as an individual and at the organization level, that's quite difficult to acquire. It's almost like you have to 
turn off so many natural tendencies that we have. Um, so not easy to do, but I can see where the value in it is. It, it kind of prompts me to think about the, the funding consideration, right? Because uh, it can be more challenging to course correct when there's been more investment. Um, at what point did you start to think about funding uh, with Molson? And what were the first steps in this direction that you made? Yeah, um, funding is a core piece of the puzzle. You know, if building a successful company is the puzzle, then funding is a core piece of that puzzle. However, it's important to always have in mind that funding is not the objective. So approaching the software development process in the iterative manner, approaching, you know, product market fit in that iterative manner, I think helped me also approach funding in a similar iterative manner. And at Molson, we raised capital in stages as we progressively de-risked the venture. So what we really did was we staged milestones based on the testing of our hypotheses and what it would cost us to complete those tests. So, you know, you can imagine at any given time in a startup, you know what's working and not working. You probably have a thesis around what you should be doing next and how that could help the company. So at that point, in my opinion, any founding team should really break that grand, you know, multi-year vision down to small milestones, down to the hypotheses that they can test, which would let them know whether or not they're in the right direction and what it would cost to get to that point where you can test that hypothesis. And that's basically it. Um, so as you would expect, when a company starts growing and testing these hypotheses and you know, reaching these milestones, its vision may start evolving. And in our case, that really helped us because every time we hit a certain milestone and we were ready to raise additional capital, the company's vision was perhaps slightly different from what it was a few months ago. And it helped us then attract the right kinds of investors as well. You know, the investors that matched the current vision of the company and not necessarily the vision that the company started with or the vision that the company had two years ago. So that was our funding approach. And it has proven to be quite successful so far in, you know, bringing in appropriate amounts of capital at the right stages and also bringing in investors who can deeply add value to the company. Arjun, when you, when you speak about investors and the manner in which they can add value, is it a personality type in the people that you're going to be dealing with? Is it uh, domain expertise? Is it a mixture of these things? I think it's a mixture. Uh, you know, you cannot, you cannot break it down to just one thing that you look for in every investor. Every human being is different. And similarly, every time you're interacting with a potential investor, what you ought to be thinking about is where do I see that synergy? You know, very much like when you're hiring somebody to your team. In this case, you're hiring somebody who can add value to the company in a few specific areas, you know, that are different from what a full-time employee would do for the company. So in this case, they can provide capital, sure. But what else about that individual really speaks to the synergy? Sometimes it is the domain expertise. Sometimes it is, you know, their experience in the startup world. Sometimes it is, you know, their experience in the industry. 
even if they are not domain experts in the product you're building or the problem you're solving, their presence in the industry can help open doors for the company. So every individual is different and must be addressed on a case-by-case basis, I suppose. And it's interesting we're speaking about, you know, essentially the recruiting of investors. But if we're going to talk about the recruiting of full-time employees, are there things that you look for in super early stages when you're looking to find product market fit uh, in terms of the character, skill sets of employees? And and how might that change as an organization matures? Right. Um, You know, my, my take on that is at any given stage in the company's growth, one must be looking for the best people you can find today, not the best people you can find in all of time. So that changes who you go out there and recruit at different stages of the company's growth. Very, very early on, you're looking for people who are inclined towards that startup life, who take pride and joy and are motivated by that lifestyle. But when you're, you know, 10 years out, the types of people you'll be looking for would be very different. Um, The second thing that is important to me when recruiting is to really first find the best people and then empower them to grow. At an early stage in the company, your resources are typically limited. You know, you have a little bit of capital that you have. um, There are just a handful of employees you can hire. So my approach to that is that it's better to grow leaders from within the company as opposed to go and hire leaders above them. Over time, of course, the company will have more capital, it'll have a bigger team and more specialized team structures when it might make more sense. But early on, it is more rewarding for the employees and it generally turns out to be a better fit for the company as well to try to just accelerate the growth of every employee within the team. Um, Another consideration is to equally weigh functional area skills with cultural fit. Not everyone is a good fit for the early stages of a startup. There is a lot of ambiguity. There is uncertainty whether this company will even be around a year or two from today. But as I said, you know, there are some people who want a career at that, at that stage, who want a career in that ecosystem where they perform their best. Uh, so you want to find people who would be a great fit for that culture. And it is not a subordinate consideration to functional area skills consideration. So at Molten, we weigh these two areas equally. Other, you know, couple of considerations for me personally are to keep the organization flat, build a culture where information flows seamlessly and everyone has a voice. And the final one would be to make work enjoyable and not make it enjoyable with, you know, superficial things like ribbons and balloons in the workplace and things like that, but really think about it at a deeper level. What makes work enjoyable at an early stage startup? Um, Things like giving your team members the freedom to do things they believe would add value to the product. Give them a voice to speak up. Everyone at an early stage should have a voice in the company. You know, you shouldn't have a culture where The founder says, do this because I said so. There has to be a culture where the team members feel empowered to make a difference because most people join early stage companies because they know they can make a difference in small teams and early stage companies. So give them that. That's what they came here for. Fuel their spark. You know, I find this so interesting, particularly at Molten, 
the best ideas just come from within the team. The engineers, the business folk, they're all working on specific areas of the product. They're hearing specific feedback. And there should be a framework within the company where they can pursue their ideas. They can surface their ideas. They can discuss them. They can influence the prioritization of those ideas. And I think the final point around what makes work enjoyable, at least in my opinion, is also giving your team members co-workers that they actually want to hang out with. Uh, you know, many a times I've seen from my prior work experiences as well, people end up having two social circles. They have the work crowd and they have the personal friend circle. And they generally hang out with people outside of work that are very different from the types of people they work with. Um, at an early stage company, what I find really interesting is we love hanging out with people we work with, which is not normal everywhere. And I think that makes work really enjoyable when you really enjoy the people you're working with. I couldn't agree more. I was actually reflecting recently on what I'd say like close working as artists. And for me, it's really about the people and the incredible sense of fun that I have at work work to be incredibly engaging. And I think that's stemming not solely from, but in the main from, I, I laugh a lot at work and, you know, work <laughs> stressful and it's serious and, and things like that. But the people around me, they're working hard, but, you know, they're cracking jokes and, you know, they're poking fun at me and stuff like that. And it just makes the whole experience so much, uh, so much more engaging. I've also never heard anyone say before that they equally weigh culture fit with technical skill. And I certainly stand behind that too. I think I've made a number of hiring mistakes where I've gone for people with great technical skill sets who just aren't the ideal fit for an environment where, as you alluded to, there's a lack of certainty. And yeah. some people thrive in that because, you know, I suppose the risk reward balance you have is that, okay, the company is a riskier prospect than a blue chip corporation. But, you know, I might end up a C-level executive coming in as an individual contributor, you know, so... It's, it's not for everyone, but it's certainly, um, if you can get comfortable in the startup world, I think the opportunities are there. I really want to ask you about whether there are specific engineering considerations we need to have when it comes to getting product market fit, attaining early stage commercial success. So the majority of our listeners are software engineers, and mm -hmm. uh, I think it would be really cool to explore whether your background as an engineer allowed to, you know, bring something in that regard, you know, bring good ideas and bring the correct considerations. Um, you know, my take on that would be really the company needs to have a framework that sets expectations on what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, and then give the team the freedom to, to build and make mistakes and improve within that set of expectations. And, you know, speaking from my experience at Molten, really what I broke these expectations down to, what are requirements versus guidelines? So requirements are those non-negotiable expectations in the company. An example at Molten, one of these requirements is no known prod bugs. You know, for those who don't know what a prod bug is, really a, a prod bug is short for production bugs. And this is when a live software has errors. So it would be going to a popular software and clicking on a button and something unexpected happens. Whether you're aware of this or not, but 
almost every software has prod bugs. And at Molten, we set a requirement that there should be no known prod bugs in the system. And if we do discover a prod bug, whether you know, it is through our own testing or it is through somebody reporting a prod bug, that becomes the highest priority item for the engineering team. And that has helped us maintain a level of software quality, which we can stand behind, which we feel proud to sell. You know, it is, it is so robust that when I do high states demos, I don't use a canned demo environment. I don't fear the so-called demo gods in the, you know, in the software engineering world. I may be at my highest profile meeting, whether it's with investors or potential customers, I will always use the production system for my demos. I'm able to do that because I have that level of confidence in our production system. And I have that level of confidence because of the expectations we've set. The second aspect of that is guidelines. These are not hard and fast requirements. You know, you don't have to wake up in the middle of the night if something like this is reported, but these are things to consider. A guideline example would be, you know, going the extra mile to solve customers' pain points. Sometimes, you know, they may need something slightly peripheral to what is core to us. And as a company that highly values its early stage customers and as a company obsessed with solving problems, we must go the extra mile. We must try to go the extra mile. Sometimes it's unreasonable and sometimes it is reasonable. And when, you know, when the team decides it is reasonable, we should put in every effort to do it. And that has led to, you know, very high customer satisfaction with seriously a low churn. So these are some engineering principles. I think the third area that I attach to my framework is product design principles. So product design principles are these principles that one must keep in mind every time a new product feature is being built, every time the efficacy of a product feature is being evaluated. So it sort of gives us a little bit of a framework. It's not a comprehensive list, but it helps us speak the same language. It helps us have a similar set of priorities and values when we're evaluating our product designs and product features. So in Molten, examples of these principles would be, we have something called a three-second rule. And the idea is that it should take the user three seconds to digest everything that's being displayed on the screen. And for us, that's really important because we deal with very complex data, you know, intellectual property rights. I mean, it can make anyone's head spin, uh, even those people who are very familiar with this space. So for us, the radical idea was, can we distill this complexity down to interfaces that are so simple that people can understand this information within three seconds. The second design principle for us was customization, that every user can customize the portal and the product to match the way they do business, as opposed to having to morph their business practices to fit the product or match the product's limitations. Uh, A third one for us is easy to use interface and how we measure that is with the amount of training that is required. Now, that is an aspirational goal that we should build a product that requires no training whatsoever. So it is an enterprise product that manages complex data, but it should be so easy to use that a new user looks at this product and they go, "Uh uh-huh, I understand what this does. And, you know, this button doesn't have a weird icon that it needs to figure out. It just says what it does, you know, those kinds of things. So to summarize, my take is to set frameworks and give the team freedom to then, you know, apply those frameworks and build the product. And for me, it comes down to requirements, guidelines, and principles. Also placing a lot of trust in people around you. Definitely. It comes with this set of shared expectations, right? 
when you know as a company we have agreed on these values, we've agreed on these principles, then one feels confident trusting others, knowing that you know, we don't have to debate the values. We don't have to debate our principles. We agree on this. And then whatever this person is going to build is going to agree with my principles of the product. I'd like to ask you whether there are any, any mistakes you made over the past few years that would guide you towards doing things differently, or do you kind of tend to view mistakes as just part of the fuel or part of the mix on the journey towards success? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, as you pointed out, it, it comes down to perspective, for sure. But it is also inevitable that if you're going to attempt to push the boundaries, if you're going to attempt to invent solutions that don't exist, errors are inevitable. They are going to happen. So at that point, it comes down to perspective. You know, are you talking about making a thousand mistakes or having a thousand learnings? You know, it's regret versus optimism in my mind. So for me, what I've established in Molten is it is completely acceptable to make mistakes. What is not acceptable is repeating the same mistake. You know, if we go and make a different mistake because we were trying to do something new and, you know, we were just unfamiliar, that's acceptable. But we must, as an organization, as a team, take the time to learn from the mistake. So at Molten, we created a sort of a rolling forum. We set aside time once a week to discuss these mistakes, to discuss our learnings. And anything that people have in mind towards process improvement, towards making things better, uh, learning from the last week. Uh, we call that a continuous improvement framework. And it doesn't take too much time, but it creates a forum where we don't ignore our mistakes. And we have a way of documenting what went wrong and what did we decide we will do as an organization differently so that we never repeat this mistake again. I have a final question for you, and I was originally thinking to ask you about what advice you could give to other companies who are seeking to attain product market fit, but we're a consulting company at Zartis, but we are in the process of creating a couple of products ourselves, so I'm going to ask you for advice for me. What advice can you give me as we're looking to attain product market fit? I think my advice would be similar to you as it would be to you know, other startups, and it would just resonate what we discussed today. I would break it down to the following points. First, obsess over the problem, nothing else. You know, purpose for existence for every startup needs to be to solve a certain problem. And every person in the company needs to know what that problem is that they're trying to solve. Everything else is a tool in the toolkit to solve that problem. So that's my point number one, obsess over the problem. Point number two is, don't get held back by sunk cost. You know, companies will do a lot of work, which will probably be in the wrong direction. It is totally acceptable to throw away code and to course correct. Uh, the third point would be launch fast, iterate quickly, and learn. And we just talked about learning. You know, try to learn from every mistake. Mistakes are inevitable. It is fine. It should be welcomed. But just hand in hand with that should be a framework to ensure that mistakes are not repeated. Uh, the fourth point from my side would be to just have fun. 
you know, have fun with this early stage, have fun in this hunt and treat your team well. This is probably the most grueling time any startup has. And it is also that time that creates the most fondest of memories. So have fun while doing this. And the final point would be just stay calm and keep going. You know, a lot can be said about persistence. And no startups course is easy. It's always a roller coaster ride. There are always, you know, unexpected turns and uh, situations arise that you never prepared for. That's fine. Just my learning from that was stay calm. There's no reason to get worked up about it. It is part of the journey. It is what we signed up for. And just keep going. You know, it takes persistence. The best companies out there all went through their fair share of uh, these twists and turns. And uh, they had conviction, they had persistence, and they kept going. Arjun, I just would like to thank you so much for sharing your experience. Uh, it's been a very enjoyable episode for me to record with you. So a big thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you. Production is always by Adnan Tuchar with support from Albaina Krasteva and Evan Sheehan and music by Robert Cooney. Catch you next time on the Story of Software podcast.